Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, we got a good conversation for you today with Andy Crouch talking to TechWise family. Before we get to that, let me t- tell you about another piece of technology that I love. It's our friends at Podbean. Exactly. Thanks, Adeline. Podbean. It's an all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. They offer the easiest way to get started in podcasting as well as enhanced features and monetization to take your podcast to the next level. Now, Podbean's mobile app for Android and iOS allows podcasters to record and publish podcasts right from their phone. I don't know iOS. I feel like I said that correctly. That means like use an iPhone, which is an outstanding feature for those of you if you're teaching a Bible class and you have participants who for some reason can't make a certain week, you can record all your your teachings directly on your phone, post it, and there you go. Simple, quick, effective podcast online. So for more information, go use the company that I've been using for years, Podbean. They'll take good care of you. You know else will take good care of you? This episode of the podcast. Get ready. Here we go. All right, friends, uh, welcome back to the show. Today we have with us for the first time, Andy Crouch. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Luke. So glad I'm finally here. <laughs> and you are, uh, you're coming to us, uh, is it the Pennsylvania? Is that where you live? Yes, I'm in my Pennsylvania? in my basement, my pleasant uh, basement in uh, Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, just outside of Philadelphia. Yeah, you know, I was uh, born in Philadelphia, grew up in Audubon oh, until yeah. I was 12. Yeah, so we're not too far away from where you are. Right, Small world. Okay, now, one of the things that we also need to admit is that you spent a weekend with our friend Jonathan Stormer. <laughs> I in did. Abilene, Te- what did you think of Abilene, Texas? Oh, well, it was glorious. Uh, I was, <laughs> he set me up with friends who had this house on a lake there, and we had such a great time. And uh, yeah, just super fun. Now, most people think Abilene is a great town because there's wonderful people there, not because it's the best looking. Not, <laughs> no, not many are describing it as glorious. <laughs> well, there is this lake, and if you happen to be staying on the lake and you get up at dawn, the bird, mm. the like little ducks are swimming in the lake, and everything's still and quiet, and the sun is just barely rising. It was actually quite amazing. I, I remember it very vividly. So I saw the beautiful part of Abilene. Good. Well, I have preached there the Sunday after Christmas the last two years. Oh. My parents live in Abilene. Cool. And so I'm there for the holidays anyway. And Stormont doesn't hook me up with a house in the lake. He just says, <laughs> stay at your parents' house. Um, I don't know what you did better than me, but um, I'm not going to be better. <laughs> it's time to ask for an upgrade. I know. Okay, so you're, the new book is called The TechWise Family. And Stormont told me this outstanding story that he's picking you up from the airport and his wife Leslie uh, is gone. And so he's got like his whole gaggle of children, which there's a lot of them. <laughs> and he's kind of nervous to meet you, never met you before, picking you up in the airport. And so what he does is he gets all of his kids in front of a screen, an iPad, a TV or something, which he usually wouldn't do like just around town, but he does that. He picks you up and has no clue what your new book is about. <laughs> That's so awesome. Don't we do that? Yes, indeed. He said something about, uh, you're talking about your daughter, and she was able to accomplish something, and uh, he was like, well, how did you get your daughter to do that at such an early age? It's quite precocious of her. And you were like, well, um, we don't let our kids look at TV until they're 10, (laughs) while every one of his underage kids has a screen in front of him. You know, this was one of the hardest things about writing this book, is 
you just as a as an author the last thing you want is the slightest like whiff of judgment or legalism pharisaism because mm-hmm. although we did have pretty strict i mean we we did really limit screens for our kids and our kids now say they wouldn't have it any other way um but oh my gosh all the other ways that that you could come into our home and have the same kinds of experiences as i had with jonathan like we all use technology to solve these problems right yeah and and in a way this is sort of what the book is about is that we use technology to to take a problem like oh i'm picking up this important person i've got my kids in the backseat of the car and we can solve that so quickly with tech and believe me my family does this just as much as any other just uh, in slightly different ways (laughs) yeah and so that's kind of an interesting like tension of the subject matter is you're giving parenting advice and it's helpful (laughs) advice I, i honestly told my wife it's like hey you actually have to listen to this podcast or read the book because I think we need to talk about some of this stuff. So I've, huh. I value your content, but you're kind of getting in people's business. Oh, man. And <laughs> you have a very poignant line where you say often technology isn't so much for the kids' entertainment, but so that the parents uh, in some ways don't have to deal with them. Yes. And as a parent of three, um, I might have done that once or twice <laughs> already today. Um, <laughs> Yeah. How, so how do you balance that tension of like you're helping us out, but you also don't want to be like the pompous guy who knows everything? Oh man, completely. Well, one way I handle that in the book is every, so I have 10, 10 commitments that a family could make in the book. And, uh, and I say at the beginning, these are not the 10 commandments. Uh, they are just 10 options that you could choose as a family to have a healthier relationship with technology. Uh, and then, uh, so I, I want to frame it first of all, as you know, these are the best suggestions we I've come up with in my own life. My friends who I really admire, who I've seen handle things well, better than we did have, um, and then at the end of every chapter, I have this little section called Crouch Family Reality Check, where I basically uh-huh. tell as honestly as I can, like ways in which our own family maybe has or has not managed to put into place one of these 10 commitments. Um, so it is tricky, but but I also feel like we all know we need help, and we basically need help having a, a better like a higher vision for what family could be that will give us a reason to do difficult things because it is always going to be easier to use technology uh, when there's that option. It's just that we might miss out on something better. And so I want it to be framed totally in terms of not what you don't do, but what you get to do if you make some choices that initially can be rather difficult. Uh, You know, like what if I don't hand the kids the tablet to keep them occupied. Well, what are my options there? Is there a way to handle that? Like I think in the car is one time. And then like the half hour before dinner is just the most stressful time in every household. I know with small kids. Um, and what, what can we do that would actually be in the long run way better, but that just requires a little bit of advanced thought and commitment. That's what I'm trying to provide in the book. Yeah. Yeah. And so we'll get into some of those specifics in a little while, but to start off, you make the statement in your book that, technology isn't bad and it's not just good, but you say it's, it's very good. Right. Um, how, I think there's an understanding that technology is something that if it's unchecked can have a very corrosive effect on our soul. And, mm. you know, the psalmist says, be still, know that I'm God. And many of us are never still. And so surprisingly, <laughs> we don't know God. And so like being still today means like, I saw a tweet the other day that I thought was really outstanding. It was something to the extent of, uh, 
I watched an entire TV show without checking my phone once, which is basically <laughs> the equivalent of reading a book now. It's that's like right? spiritual athleticism at this point. Yeah, yeah. Just to watch a TV show without doing. Um, okay, you say it's very good. Unchecked technology can have a very damaging effect on our soul. How is it still good yet it can be so destructive? Hmm. Well. Uh, two layers here, I think. I mean, one is I am using technology in a very broad sense. So I don't just mean even just screens, even though those are the kind of visible mm-hmm. new things, uh, especially the portable glowing rectangles we all have now. Uh, but I'm thinking of it in terms of all the devices that we've created really using modern science and technology, uh, engineering, um, And I think when you think of it in that whole spectrum, it's pretty clear this is all part of human beings doing what we were commissioned to, I would say, as a Christian, by God at the beginning, which is to be fruitful, fill the earth, discover all the possibilities inherent in God's world, and and bring them to fruitfulness. And that's what technology does, especially with electromagnetic spectrum, with certain ways of representing information and so forth. And I think the fundamental baseline Christian attitude toward that is this is all image-bearing activity, positive in, in, in almost every way, sort of initially. Now, then there's kind of a spectrum, I think, of uses of it. And some at one end are really things that are just always idolatrous. And I guess that's a key word to introduce is this idea that the image bearers from early on have been tempted to take good things, always good things, <laughs> and turn them into substitutes for their own image bearing and ultimately substitutes for the God whose image they're supposed to bear. Mm-hmm. And it does seem like certain things are way more susceptible to that than others, right? So uh, <laughs> let's see. Um, well, milk, uh, you know, uh, milk that we store in our refrigerator is a kind of cultural good, right? There's some technology mm-hmm. involved, pasteurization and refrigeration. Yeah. Uh, but in my life, milk is more healthy than ice cream. <laughs> okay, mm-hmm. ice cream is also made from milk with the addition of some other basic yeah. ingredients. But I have a lot more trouble having a fully healthy relationship with ice cream than I do with, you know, 2% milk or skim milk. They're both, they're both technological, really. I mean, they're both renderings of the world that human beings have extensively processed using pretty sophisticated processes, at least in modern production of these things. But, uh, but there's a spectrum in how likely they are to be an idol in my life and to replace other things in my life. And I think that's also true of what we more typically think of as technology. It's just clear to me. Like, I actually was thinking as we were getting ready for this podcast that I, I think podcasts are a way healthier use of technology than a lot of social media. Um, and I'm not even sure I know exactly why, but I just don't sense they have the same addictive and distorting power that other, that other technologies that we invented around the same time, I mean, like in the last 10 years, yeah. have had. Uh, like if you think like if Yik Yak is at one end of how bad it can be, podcasts are pretty close to the other end. And yeah. um, so that's how I think we okay, can hold so I, together these two ideas. Well, okay, I've got a theory about that. So yeah. one of your, your things is that you, you don't like technology just to connect you to like celebrities and people that you don't really yes. know, but connect to actual people. And yes. in Twitter, you get a 140 character interaction with someone you don't know often. In right. podcasts, you at least get a conversation. Right. And so exactly. it removes it, it removes the pseudo interaction to a more wow. I mean it's still a virtual interaction. Like you right. and I are not 
in the same room. That's but right. We, back and forth, eye contact. Yes. That's, I think that's more the healthy part of technology is that it's fostering a, yes. a, a truer connection than, than 140 characters. Right but, on. Okay, okay, let's go back to the idolatrous nature of it. So hmm. like the, the temptation of the creator, the created to find other created things and worship that instead of the creator. Like that's at the heart hmm. of the Christian struggle is idolatry. Yeah. And uh, one of, um, a guy named Shane Hips, who's been on the podcast a couple of times, he has this great line where he says, the screen always wins. Yes. And I, I moved to a, a new church about a year and a half ago. And this church in our worships, in our auditorium, we have this massive TV. I'm the preacher and it's right above my head. And so- <laughs> And you can he, see where people are looking. They- like 80% of people are looking at the yeah, screen. That's and, right. Uh, so Ian Cron, I don't know if you know Ian. I know but, Ian. Okay, so Ian was, uh, was at our church uh, a while ago, and we're helping him get his new podcast started. And I was showing him the worship center. He goes, so people are always kind of like looking at your forehead, which is kind of like what people do when they're drunk at a bar. And I was like, Ian, did you just call all my congregants like alcoholics? And he goes, eh, maybe, but, like, but the screen always wins. Like we always go to the, the big, bright, shiny thing. And yeah, and... I actually have a theory about this. Uh, okay. It's not in the book, and, and I don't know if it's right, but <laughs> I, like, the, the thought experiment first would be, if you were here in person, like right now I'm looking at an image of you on a screen, mm-hmm. but if you were here in person and I had a, an exactly same-sized uh, screen representation of you like right next to you, um, that was a glowing rectangle representation, same size, same fidelity, let's say, mm-hmm. I would be drawn, I know I'd be drawn to the screen rather than the real you. And here's my theory. In all of the long, eons long history of hum- human beings on this planet, for almost the entire time we've been on this planet, the only thing that glowed by itself was fire. Yep. And, and the sun, but the sun is too strong for us to look at. And all other light was reflected light, except for candlelight and firelight. And you know how mesmerizing a uh, fire is, right? Or a candle. Like there's something about that light and uh, it's because it's so unusual. Uh, So often we see light bouncing off other surfaces, but these things glow on their own. I think we are not neurologically prepared (laughs) to handle things that glow on their own. They just grab us in the same way a fireplace or a candle does. Uh, but now we're surrounded all the time by things that glow on their own. Yeah. And so that reflected light, even if you were here in person, the, you, the reflected light version of you <laughs> it, would it be wins. less compelling to me than the transmitted light version of you. Yeah, I, I, that's a fascinating theory. I would co-sign it. I don't know if it's true or not, but it sounds, it sounds <laughs> I really just, prob- <laughs> I just read it by a neuroscientist, and of course he's a scientist, so he's like, well, I have no yeah. idea, we have no data, but he said that sounds very plausible. So at least well, I have a it's not crazy vote from a neuroscientist. Yeah. And I'm sure he's smarter than me, so I would go with him on that. But it makes sense to me. But like, it's, we're mesmerized by fire, by the light. We, yes. we are drawn to it. And so if we're going to tie this back to idolatry, is yeah. it the idolatry of entertainment? Like we, we want that one facet of the human experience, which is like happiness or joy or entertainment. And we, we always, is, is that the idol you think we're worshiping often with screens or, or what do you think hmm. it is? Well, I wonder if it's, I think that can be a part of it for sure, but I wonder if it's deeper. And again, gosh, I don't know how I would know this for sure. But is there something fundamental about the biblical idea that God is word and God is not picture? And so the commandment is you shall not make a graven image. Now, I certainly think non-image things like ice cream, for example, 
can be an, can take an on an idolatrous role in my life. But I wonder if there's something about the visual representation that is a very deep, very perennial challenge for human beings. Um, that that the word is not in the same way, or the voice is not in the same way. Uh, I, I just wonder. And so it could be that that the reason we all have this sense, this sense that we're being tempted to a kind of mesmerizing relationship with these things um, is really that they present us these images, which sometimes are highly entertaining and, of course, are designed like almost calibrated to be titillating, right, in all yeah. sorts of senses. I don't just mean a sexual sense, though, certainly including that. Just like the all these, I mean, Apple designers have spent a lot of time making all these buttons bright and candy-like and engaging yeah. and making those drop shadows just the right depth and all that stuff. It's oh, amazing. Um, yeah. They've worked really hard to make it very compelling in a way that my own real life, especially my internal life, is not actually. Yeah. And so I'm tempted. I think this is part of what the image does is it tempts me out of the complexity and messiness and muddiness of my internal life into a beautifully realized external that I can fixate on. Yeah. Uh, whereas to really be with you uh, in person, if we didn't have all this media, would require a kind of attention to you and attention to myself that if I have an alternative, I'll give it to something else. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so if you've clearly read a book or two in your life, and I'm sure you've watched a movie or two in your life, and <laughs> like everyone else, you're always going to say, you know, the book is better than the movie. <laughs> like ev everyone will say that partly because they just want to yeah. brag about that they've read the book you know that's part of why we do that um but we still like more movies are watched than books are read yeah. like oh, we yes. we believe in the word like there's some sort of imaginative aspect to reading a story that exceeds right. what you can get that's when you rich. watch it but, yeah. but we still choose the cheaper quicker alternative <laughs> i mean i do it all the time and but like you said apple has designed their phones so that they are so fascinating. And uh, I was reading something somewhere where a doctor was talking about how the, the way that messages show up on your phone, like a text message or an email, is similar to like a slot machine in the coloring yes. and the patterning, right? So it's like you, every time you pull down the email thing, it's like you're pulling down a slot. It's, oh, ho hopefully I won the reward. Um, you talk about nudges, Hmm. They like technology has become the absolute master at this this idea of nudges. Can you explain the idea of nudges to us? Yeah, for sure. Well, you know, nudges are things. Well, uh, actually, let me back up because you said something really important. You said, "Hopefully, I'll get the reward," and you named the most hmm. important component, which is intermittent reinforcement, is the most yep. powerful form. Not yeah. always getting the reward. Strangely enough, explain um, why. Why is that? Why is it uh, well, actually, I'm not sure I know exactly why. I know it's empirically shown. And there are yeah. extreme cases in lab experiments with rats and those mm -hmm. kind of things where you can get rats to like literally starve waiting for an intermittent hit of the certain of a certain kind of you know drug or whatever. Um, we just know. I don't uh, do we know why this is? <laughs> I think it's because even even animals, let alone human beings, have this sort of. Um, we have purpose. We're driven to purpose. And the idea that I might get what I want is actually more powerful than I know what I'm going to get. Like if it's mechanical, yeah. that's not as powerful for us as that open-ended possibility, maybe. Yeah. Um, so, you know, nudges generally, I, I take this, of course, uh, from a book by Cass Sunstein and, and Richard Thaler, I guess, um, called, called Nudge. And they just point out that that we human beings have a hard time doing things that are difficult. <laughs> and so it would be really best for us if, 
if other people in our lives who intend good for us would put um, systems in place that just nudge us in the right direction. They don't make us make the right choice, but they encourage us to make the right choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a nudge is something that sort of, it's like a little assistant to your willpower that just says, you know what? The default option is probably is the better thing. So this is why my wife puts salad on the table yeah. at most nights at dinner and does not put ice cream on the table. Like we go to find the ice cream. <laughs> I like, you we, keep talking about ice cream. I've given ice cream up for lint. <laughs> oh, so like each time you say this, you're just like digging right at me. Uh, but you're right. Well, like, I, yeah. if it's late at night, I want to relax. I'm going to go to ice cream. I'm not going to go to salad, right? Because so, that's the easiest thing to do. I think this is another key part. Um, it's when so so. Let's think about going back to the book and the movie for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, the reward of the book, I think most of us feel is deeper in certain ways, but it takes a certain amount of time and a certain kind of attention. Mm-hmm. that I don't have always have energy for. And it's never instant. Like it takes several pages to get in even the best book, right? It takes yeah. several pages to get it immersed in it. Whereas the screen-based entertainment is designed to grab and keep my attention every frame. And some editor has spent hours per minute of uh, finished video thinking about how to keep you watching. And, and they assume very little attention from you. Yeah. So at the moments when we are low energy and just want someone else to do the attentional work for us, in a way, when you're watching professional video or even, I mean, all of us are, who are video producers now, even if we're just making a little YouTube video for our friends, we instinctively do what the, the professional editors do. That someone else has paid the very careful attention on your behalf of how to keep you interested. <laughs> and so it just carries you along. Whereas the book would require you to, to sort of commit yourself to it in a way that many of us at the end of us, any given day are too tired to do. But of course, part of why we're too tired is we've spent the day in quite distracting and sort of enervating, undermining activities that leave us just spent at the end of the day rather than really able to give ourselves to one another, to our kids, uh, to, to a book. Uh, mm-hmm. We'd rather just press a button and let someone else entertain us. Yeah. So hypothetically, if someone spends most of their day reading books <laughs> Uh, writing stuff, interacting with people, and for them to relax to go home, they're like, hey, you know what? Kids are asleep if they hypothetically have kids in this situation. Yes. Uh, and they just want to turn on whatever shows on the DVR, <laughs> and they just want to like turn their brain off. Like there's a, there's a section in, I think, Donald Miller's Blue Like Jazz, where there's a pastor railing against like TVs or something. And he's like, yeah, that's mindless activity. You should never have a TV. And Donald Miller's like, I'd really like to be mindless for an hour. I, and so we went out and bought a TV. There's some story like that. So like, some of us, perfect. this Solves hypothetical person, um, <laughs> there is a fascination, like we want to turn everything off and just relax. Is there a way to balance that? Or is that just uh, something you have to completely discard to, to have a healthy, idealized life? Well, I, gosh, I don't object at all to, I mean... Uh, all kinds of rest and relaxation. I mean, the other thing I would add, though, that hypothetical person you mentioned, it was interesting what you didn't mention because it's so rare in our modern technologized world, which was actual bodily activity. Like, that you didn't... Me- uh, you okay, know. this hypothetical person doesn't like to say he works out every morning because it sounds like he's bragging. Oh, right, right, right. Okay. Right. And is like doing the CrossFit workout of the day every yeah, day. Okay, got you, it, got it. Okay. Yeah. So look... If if that's true, if you are spending a good full day in those kind of full body, cognitively rich activities, at the end of the day, first of all, 
you'll go to bed earlier and sleep better. Yeah. But if, if there's an hour or two in the evening, I have no problem. Last night, I got on a plane after a very full day, and uh, I, I w- flipped through the movies and watched Rogue One, which I never got around to watching before. And it was two-plus hours of just, you know, I'm in this airplane seat. It was yeah. just totally mindless, totally someone else doing the work for me. Uh, it was also unbelievably derivative of the original Star Wars, but we won't get into that. Uh, I mean, I just couldn't believe how many shots there were. They're, they must have had sh- like a checklist. Oh, let's make sure we get that shot and that shot and that line and all that. Anyway, so, you know, not mindful, really, but diverting. There's no problem with that. Yeah. Um, but, the you know, the question is really, what are we fundamentally building our lives on? And I think most of us realize these diversions are so tempting that unless we build in nudges, that is sort of frameworks in our life that that steer us towards richer things and disciplines, which are kind of the spiritual equivalent of the workout. They're, they're really hard, but they develop capacity in us. We wouldn't have any other way yeah. that unless we do that, we're going to, we just all know we're going to be in trouble and we're going to be shallower for it. Yeah. You have a line in the book that our tendency to take is to, is to take the easiest road. And that is yeah. without nudges, without things, that's where our default will go to. And I, yeah. I do like the idea of incorporating, like the whole person needs work, like your body, your mind, your soul, like all of it goes yes. together. And Heart, mind, soul, strength. Yeah. I've, I've heard that somewhere, right? That sounds like it's <laughs> a really smart person said that. You, you and your book talk about how you take, uh, you work for 20, is it 24 minutes? And then you take like a screen time, 24 minutes, and then you take a break. Explain that to us. Right. I mean, I I picked this up, honestly, first of all, just because uh, I I couldn't get work done. I was procrastinating so badly. When I write, I'm so fearful of writing. I really struggled to do it. And Mm -hmm. so I learned about this technique. A lot of people have heard about it called the Pomodoro technique, which is just the Italian word for tomato. And it's because this guy (laughs) who developed it had a timer that looked like a tomato. It was like in the shape of a tomato, a kitchen timer. But he realized if he, that if he set it for 24 minutes, um, you can do anything for 24 minutes, even just stare at a blank screen. Like if you tell me I have to do that for a whole afternoon, there's no way I'm going to try. But if you say, look, you need to get something written, try, just try sitting there and you'll have a timer running. And at the end of 24 minutes, you get a six minute break. So it's 24 on six off. And what I use that six off for is, is to move around and, and usually to go outside unless it's terrible weather out. I, I open the door, walk out walk around my house, maybe walk around the block, or I go up upstairs and make a cup of tea or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that like is this beautiful reset that allows me to use my whole body in ways that writing doesn't in the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then, you know, every few hours I take a much longer break and, and no requirement to do any work during that other than just to do something that resets my kind of physical relationship to my surroundings. Mm-hmm. I've found it to be the only way I get anything done. Yeah. Uh, it, it makes sense. I mean, it makes perfect sense that you can't, you know, for me in like the, the writing process of my life is work out first thing in the morning, get to the office, close the, the, the window, you know, lock the door, turn the lights uh, off, just have like a, a very muted screen. And I can do that for a couple hours and then I'm done. And then the rest of the yes. day I interact with people, but it, it, it's incorporated. Like you can't just stare at screens all day long. It doesn't. It doesn't work. No, you you right. need to have a break for it. And one of the things that I really liked. One of the tips. You, you have ten tips that you mentioned earlier, or ten uh, disciplines. Um, mm-hmm. That screens or your your technology pieces. They wake up after you and they go to bed before you. 
Yes. Yes. Talk about. Can you? This is the reverse of what most people do, by the way, right now, and with their smartphones. I know they're the worst. Maybe, I, okay, I might do that sometimes too, or frequently. <laughs> or I read the book and I was like, I need to stop doing this for a week so I don't feel guilty when I talk to Andy. Um, <laughs> yeah, because a week will be enough distance. Then you can go right back to the to your addiction. Yeah, exactly. That's right. But uh, like as a preacher, like you do something right for a week, then you can preach on it. It's the same thing with the podcast. Like I, I do it good for a week, and then I pretend like I'm a pseudo expert, like you, and then. Like, I'm almost like you. You wrote the book. I read it. And so we're in this together. Oh, okay. But anyway, so hypothetically, let's say I've been doing that for a long time. Uh, what's happening in my soul if I'm learning to put my technology to bed before me and let it wake up after me? Well, I think the big thing you're gaining from that is silence at the beginning and end of the day um, and, and or relationship. You're, you're married. I guess I'm yes. married. Uh, so I'm with my wife, uh, especially at, at night as we go to bed. And, you know, we, ha- we have this temptation to lie in bed. Uh, a friend of mine got a card from, I think it was from his fiance, And she wrote the card, like pre-printed greeting card said, uh, you know, dear my future husband, I can't think of anyone I would rather lie in bed staring at devices next to <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of my life. You know, you got it, so right? Like, oh my gosh, this is horrible. Like, okay, so what would you gain? Well, what you gain is the beginning and end, which are in some ways the most vulnerable parts of our day. They're the days when anxieties show up, when fears and, and also fantasies and imagination show up. Uh, dreams, literally, like you wake up in the morning, perhaps having dreamed. If the first thing I do is roll over and let my smartphone set the agenda, whatever notifications are there, whatever news or social media stuff is there, I'm, I'm abandoning this moment to learn something about myself and the world and about God mm-hmm. and to start my day engaging with God and to end my day sort of falling asleep in the arms of God. And, and I also think the other thing is uh, I really think these devices – ramp up anxiety for us. A a lot of what comes in, a lot of what what the makers of the various apps I use notify me about is anxiety producing, Mm. or at least it's like unsettling. So Stephen Bannon has been removed from the National Security Council. Like that came across as an alert just before we started talking. Mm -hmm. I don't even know what to think about that. Am I supposed to feel worried about that? Happy about that? Like, what am I supposed to do with that? What now in the middle of the day, if that comes in, that's okay. But if that comes in at 9.45 at night, when I should be sort of commending myself to God, um, engaging my wife as we get ready to sleep, boy, that's a terrible thing to mess up my life with at that moment. So I think you gain a kind of quiet in the frame of your life that we all really need for sanity. Yeah, I I think that's the idea of a nudge of, I'm not going to let the anxiety of this world be the rhythm that I live upon. Wow, wow, exactly, exactly. And so you just put it, in a place where it can't bother you yeah. for those hours. And it's so much, oh, it's so much healthier now that I've learned to do okay, that. Okay, I don't mean to be judgy of you, but I read your entire book and I felt judged. So I'm going to put it back a little bit. Oh, I'm surprised I'm so that, sorry. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But I feel like, like, I'm surprised that you have notifications on your phone. Like, I have all those turned off because I don't want them telling me what I'm, so, I'm, I'm absolutely shocked by that. I mean, you have so many, I don't mean to, like, yeah. I'm really judging right now. I'm sorry. I, That's coming out I'm of a dark la- place. It's, you know what it is? It's laziness. I actually think I've turned most of them off on my phone, but I was sitting at lunch before we were talking. We're talking in the middle of the day here. And uh, it was on my iPad, to be honest. I don't think I do have them on my phone because I have turned most of them off. But it takes, it takes attention to turn all the things off. Like you install yeah. a new app and it just like automatically notifies you. So I should be better about it. But, You're right. Okay, but it is, again, <laughs> this goes back to the, if you let technology be unfettered in your life, it will 
it will overcome. Yes. And so you've got to create these disciplines to set yourself away from it. Um, yeah. Okay. No TV in your house until your kids were 10. Uh, so so right. that's like a decade with no TV, uh, if my math is correct, True. which I wasn't around Harvard like you were, but I think that's right. Um, how did you watch like football? Like I live in Texas. Like that is the major, I'm a Christian, but I'm also a football fan. I'm not saying they're equal, but they're pretty close. How do you, okay, put that aside for another conversation. 10 years with no TV and sounds like your kids are still alive. They've they're functioning. Yeah. They were able to know enough about pop culture to survive middle school. <laughs> so it somehow worked, right? <laughs> they would definitely say it worked. I would say the greatest moment of triumph in parenting, and you don't get many moments like this for us, was some car ride. The two kids were in the backseat when they were maybe 16 and 13. They're 20 and 17 now. And they were just talking with each other about the awkwardness in middle school of not knowing about all the shows that their friends watch. Because av- even after we got a TV, our family, I mean, uh, honestly, our, our TV has probably been on, I don't think it's been on in the last month. It's it's near me in the basement, and I'm trying to think of when it was last turned on. Maybe, I guess my uh, Catherine and Amy watched a movie a couple weeks ago. That's it. So they don't know any of this pop culture stuff firsthand. Although it's also simple. You can kind of pick it up if you're paying attention from other people and so forth. But anyway, these two, two you know, middle schoolers or early high schoolers, uh, in the case of my son, are, <laughs> Amy and Timothy are talking in the backseat. And, and Timothy says to his sister, his younger sister, in this big brotherly way, well, Amy, you have to understand, this is because our parents are intentional about what's good for us in a way that other parents aren't. And and Amy's like, yeah, and it's kind of hard at first, but in the long run, it's so much better. And, and they just go back and forth in this little processing conversation, and Catherine and I are just sitting in the front seat, high-fiving. They're really good right there. Cause they're- so the, the kids would say it was awkward. And I think actually more awkward than the middle school or high school TV pop culture stuff was actually video games for my son, not having them at our house. His friends just would not come over because when they were like eight, nine and 10, when they got older, they had other things to do. But, but in that kind of elementary school years, as near as I can tell, it's all boys do with each other anymore Mm. when they play together. And they just were so bored. They, they would only come once. That was very hard. And he would say that was hard. Although he would also say now he, he would, he's fine with mm. it, but it was tough. It was tough to watch your son. And my son was maybe the most socially smooth at that age. Unlike most boys who are just super socially smooth. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> but to watch him awkwardly, you know, not knowing what to do with this kid he wants to be friends with, but there's nothing for that kid to do that that kid likes to do. Oh, it was, it was really rough. Yeah. Um, at the same time, it was, uh, fruitful in the long run, uh, for, for all of us, I think. What are some ways that we could scale that down though? Cause not everyone's going to be able to do the absolutely no TV thing, but they can understand that there are benefits to, to this idea, the suggestion. Um, are, are there ways to scale that down that can be more accessible? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, <laughs> uh, it's hard for me not to push back on the idea. Not everybody can do well, it. Like, how am I well, going to watch yes, football? All... How do I, get... <laughs> I okay. live in Texas. Okay. Like, I would get fired You're... from my church if I didn't know anything about football. <laughs> like, it'd literally be like, Luke, you know, you've done a good job. Thanks for quoting the Bible, but you don't, you don't know football. But you are. You're just not paying attention. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. So I would oh, say, give me, give me the real pushback. Give me, give me the real pushback on me thinking I can't well, live without. No, it. I, I am. Uh... I, I understand that. I actually, I'm not going to push back on that. I think, uh, there's a lot to be said for kind of caring about what our neighbors care, care about. And these are fun, good things, yeah. right? Games are, and, and sports are and good. And Homeland's really I'm, good this season, which obviously you've missed <laughs> that too. 
I've, I've missed out. Sorry. <laughs> At least I saw Rogue One like three years later or whatever. Um, well, so yeah, so I actually don't want to push all the way back and I am, I am not anti, I'm not against any of this stuff when it's in its proper place. So I would say the things I would cut down, I, w- I would cut out uh, background screens. I, I really think screens should only be on when we choose to use them, not when they're just sort of running in the background. So I would turn, I really think every family should turn off the TV in the background if, if that's something your family does. Then the next thing I would cut down on is unaccompanied screen time. So almost all things are more addictive when we use them alone. So my relationship, Mm. just to keep our ice cream thing going, my relationship with ice cream is way more healthy when I'm eating it with some other people than when it's late at night and I get up and look in the freezer. (laughs) So, um, so, and then I would say cut down on unintentional or accidental or kind of grazing. Like, let me just see what's on. But so the opposite of that would be, Hey, there's a, a, is it Cowboys where you are or is it another team? Yeah. So the Cowboys are (laughs) right. Um, The Cowboys are going to be on. I'm gathering with my family and my friends. We're going to turn on the TV at this moment. We're going to watch it. We've got a plan for how to make it fun for everybody. That's awesome. Like I don't have any problem with that. Or Homeland is really good this season. I'm making it a priority. I'm watching it with my wife. Well, it'll give us really rich kind of complex, you know, troubling, but also important things to talk about. Go for it. If it's intentional, if it's together, I think it's way less likely that it's getting out of hand and replacing something more important in our yeah. lives. Uh, and that makes perfect sense. The You work from home, I'm assuming, if you're in your basement right now? Uh, yeah, half okay. of my time. Half of my time at an office and half I'm in my uh, work. So I home. used to work, I was a church planner for seven years or so, and so I office from home for all those years. And I often got the question, hey, do you just go on your couch and watch TV during the day? And in seven, I can honestly, I never once did that because it was always, this is work time and TV time is late at night and you, you keep it in, like, I can't imagine just waking up and turning the TV on. Like I just, anyway, whatever. One of the things you also, but I I mean, but the media Netflix subscriber watches 25 hours a week. So median is the middle of the the, uh, half watch more, half watch less. And now that's not every wow. American, yeah. but it's kind of stunning. 25 hours a week is almost four hours a day, every day. I, uh, that's just amazing to me, but I heard that from a Netflix executive, uh, secondhand, I will say, but someone who I trust no, to I don't, report I, me the number. Yeah, I don't think that's unrealistic. I just think it's stunning. It's stunning. And does that mean it's kind of on in the background? Is the, I think it means people are multitasking. They're kind of doing, they're watching it. It's like your friend who managed to watch without doing their email or checking their phone. Yeah. I think something's out of, out of whack if it's that much of your life, honestly. Well, yeah. I just don't know how any, any of us can afford that and be the creative people we're And, and that's a great, like the creativity. Uh, I think being a yeah. consumer, this is your language of, we want to uh, create more than we consume. Th- uh, yes. those, are, those almost seem like they're, they're polar opposites. That so you choose, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to consume or I'm going to create and it's almost like there's a different switch that you have to turn on to be a creator instead of being a consumer. How has that happened by stepping away from more of these screen time and other te- technological pieces? Well, I will say, I mean, the most creative things in my life have all happened during Sabbath of different lengths. Mm-hmm. So Sundays, all the technology gets turned off and put away in our house. 
Um, but then there's vacation where we, t- we have the great gift of being able to take two solid weeks every summer. I turn off all my email. I don't visit social media. I may use it like to check the weather or something, but I just, I'm not on the screen hardly at all during our vacation. And then I've taken these sabbaticals. I mean, last Lent 2015, I was on a sabbatical from work, unpaid sabbatical that we saved up for, for like seven years. And, uh, for all of Lent, I was, comp- I had no screens at all. And the most important creative insights and decisions in my life have come in those times Hmm. because, you know, I almost wonder if there's a difference between being a producer and being a creator. Hmm. Um, and, and I've worked as a producer. I don't mean that in a bad sense exactly, but you can produce stuff while you're consuming. Like you can sit on the couch with the TV on and produce tweets or Facebook updates or, you know, whatever. But if you really want to create, it requires a kind of solitude and silence and attention that you just can't multitask that sort of thing. And, and, and it's not just a matter of a few minutes, like often you need days, weeks, or even months to really create what you were created to make. I think now it's very hard to find that time, but, uh, but when I've managed to carve out that time, it's all the, all the good things in my life have happened because I had that kind of space. Mm. Um, and sometimes involuntarily, I mean, I got fired. Well, I mean, I, a, a magazine I worked for ended. It was, you know, it was closed down. I didn't have a job. Um, and I never would have chose that, uh, chosen that, but it actually was one of the most fruitful eight, nine months of my life. Um, my first book came out of that empty season where I didn't have all this stuff in my life. Hmm. For those who can't take the long chunks, like right away, uh, they, they have to prepare and get sure. ready for them like, like you described. You also create some, again, very scalable stuff about an hour a day. Uh, a day. Explain, yep. explain the, the very manageable daily, weekly kind of practices. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, even Sabbath in the Bible is not just a day a week. It's also this practice of gleaning, which is every day you leave stuff undone so that uh, the, the poor who don't have land to harvest, they can harvest. And then you have the sabbatical year, which is every seven. You've got the Jubilee every 49. And, and so I've been thinking about that with all of our practices. Uh, they, they need to scale all the way down to a single day and all the way up to kind of a whole life in a way. And so with tech, what our family, at least, we, we have pretty much done this one, an hour a day. And for us, it's around dinner time. Uh, I think bedtime is another good option uh, when you have smaller kids in particular. Um, all the devices get parked in the little device station <laughs> and everything's turned off. We even, I mean, it's dinner time for us. So we turn off the electric lights uh, at least during the dark times of the year. And we light candles, uh, those beautiful glowing mesmerizing mm-hmm. things. Um, and for, for about an hour, uh, uh, this is not every night, honestly. So we get distracted, we get yeah. busy, we get anxious, we move on. But our aim is an hour a day and then one day a week, that's Sunday for us. Um, and then one week a year, that's vacation, our vacation week. Just turn it all off. And and if that seems like too much, it's still it, like any discipline starts to break the power of compulsion. So even if you just decide we can't do an hour a day, but we could do 30 minutes a day all together as a family. And then I've had other parents say, oh, my gosh, my kids need way more than an hour a day off these things. <laughs> like we need four hours a day. And that's fine, too. The amount isn't as important as the daily commitment to try to make this happen. Mm-hmm. Um, cause it, it's that commitment that sets you free from the idea that the default settings of this device, which is always on, always nudging, always notifying, uh, I'm not going to accept those settings. I'm going to decide how to yeah, use it. That's good. One of the, uh, first, uh, pieces of advice on, uh, a, uh, smartphone that was given to me that really changed my life was 
you know you don't have to have it set to check your email every 15 minutes and buzz your pocket. <laughs> and I, like, I didn't even realize that was an option. And then oh, I was like, oh, yeah, cool. I can just check it on mine instead of their time. Like, they don't have to determine my schedule. So, like, anyway, oh. I, I, love, I love the book. I think it's very helpful. I think it's a great uh, starter for some people. For others who've been doing this for a while, I think it would still give great ideas. Now, one thing that was also surprising is that you said during your time in Abilene, Storman actually had a great idea that he gave to you, a one-liner. <laughs> That you've continued to use, and like we've we're friends now, so I don't feel like you need to lie to me. Like, part of me thinks you just made that up to be nice. Um, oh, I did not make that up. I, so it it it's about a very deep subject, actually, in human affairs, which is the profound disappointment that comes when you go to eat a cookie, and you think it's a chocolate chip cookie, but it's actually an oatmeal raisin cookie. <laughs> And what Jonathan said to me that I have used all over the place since then is the secret ingredient in oatmeal raisin cookies is betrayal. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. It's so right. Betrayal. I've, I just don't know any disappointment as deep as That's, that first bite where you're like, here comes the chocolate chip, and it's a raisin. It's betrayal. That's, well, you know, as someone who's been friends with Stormont for probably a decade now, uh, betrayal and disappointment is something that's very consistent it with comes, his comes yeah, with with being friends with him. <laughs> Um, <laughs> unlike that, this new book, The TechWise Family, will not be a disappointment. It, no. dis- it is not the oatmeal raising no, cookie of It's books. not a betrayal, it's not a disappointment. <laughs> what I really like is that it's even small. Like, it's not even, like, it's, it, it fits in the palm of your hand. It's almost like the size of a very, yes. like, it's an iPad Nano kind of size. <laughs> or mini, iPad mini, that's what they're called. So, hey, Andy, thank you so much for the time. Great work in the book. Man, such a pleasure, Luke. Thank you so much. All right, friends, hope you enjoyed that one. Andy Crouch's TechWise family, get a copy of that. And also don't forget our friends at Podbean, an all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. It's the easiest way to get started in podcasting as well as enhanced features and monetization to take your podcast to the next level. What do you think about Podbean, Adeline? She's speechless. It's so good. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.